0: This is Spacetime Series 21, Episode 79, for broadcast on the 5th of October 2018. Coming up on Spacetime, NASA's Opportunity rover still silent, the latest neutrino experiment records its first tracks, and the 100th launch of an Ariane 5 rocket. All that and more coming up on Spacetime. Welcome to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. Scientists are increasing the frequency of commands being sent to the still-silent Mars Opportunity rover on the surface of the red planet. Opportunity went silent on June 10th as a global dust storm took hold, covering the Martian surface and blocking out the sunlight needed to recharge the golf cart-sized rover's solar panels. Mission managers at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, have increased the frequency of commands it's beaming to the six-wheeled rover by way of NASA's Deep Space Communications Network dishes from three times per week to multiple times every day. It's thought the rover's experienced a low-power fault and perhaps also a mission clock fault and possibly an up-loss timer fault, all of which should be self-corrected once the rover's batteries have recharged. But all that depends on the global Martian dust storm, which is continuing to decay with atmospheric opacity or TAU now below 1.3 at Opportunity's location. Passive listening for Opportunity has also continued over a broader range of times, performed by JPL's Radio Science Group, which records radio signals emanating from Mars using a very sensitive broadband receiver. And they've also started broadcasting what they call sweep and beeps, to address a possible issue which could have developed under some conditions with the mission clock fault. Opportunity was launched from the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Florida three weeks after its twin rover Spirit on July 7, 2003, landing on the Meridiani Planum near the Martian equator on January 25, 2004. Spirit had touched down three weeks earlier in Gusev Crater on the other side of the Red Planet. Both rovers were only designed to operate for 90 days in the harsh freeze-dried Martian deserts. But much to everyone's amazement, continued operating for years. Spirit remained operational for 2,269 days until finally getting bogged in a sand dune with its solar panels pointing away from the sun. It sent its final message to Earth on the 22nd of March 2010, more than six years after landing. Opportunity continued operating even longer – having now uncovered well in excess of 5,300 days on the Martian surface, examining rocks and minerals, and travelling more than 45 kilometres from its landing site to its current location in Perseverance Valley, a pass leading off the rim of Endeavour Crater. Glenn Nagel from NASA's Deep Space Communications Complex in Canberra says efforts to re-establish contact with the rover are continuing. Oh, yes, we are. In fact, actually, at the moment, it's a daily ritual for us to communicate with opportunity, Uh, usually sort of hour-long passes, uplinking some commands to see if the spacecraft is awake and to maybe return sort of a, hi, I'm here, beep. But uh, at this stage, we just continue to listen, and we'll wait for NASA to make any announcements if they, if we uh, happen to lock into any signal. There's been a few false positives so far for for Opportunity. It's gotten a few people overexcited on Twitter, but (laughs) when it when it actually happens, I'm sure NASA will be the first to let you know. The band will be out. Oh, absolutely. Uh, It'll look from a personal point of view. You know, if we do not hear from Opportunity again. It's been an incredible 90-day mission that's lasted 14 and a half years. That's the CSIRO's Glenn Nagel from NASA's Deep Space Communications Complex at Tidbinbilla near Canberra. And this is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. The world's largest liquid argon neutrino detector has just recorded its first particle tracks. The facility, known as the Prototype Deep Underground Neutrino Experiment or Proto-Dune, is operated by CERN, the European Organisation for Nuclear Research. Neutrinos are elementary subatomic particles generated through radioactive decay in stars, in supernovae, in nuclear explosions, particle accelerators and atomic reactors. They're the most common form of matter in the universe and, having almost no mass, are capable of being accelerated almost to the speed of light. The neutrino is so named because it's electrically neutral, and because its rest mass is so small it was long thought to be zero. Neutrinos come in three known types or flavours. Electron neutrinos, muon neutrinos and tau neutrinos, each with their own unique properties and masses. And here's where it gets really interesting. Neutrinos oscillate between these three flavours. For example, an electron neutrino produced in a beta decay reaction may interact in a distant detector as a muon or tau neutrino. Although they have no electrical charge, neutrinos do have their own corresponding antimatter counterparts, identified through their opposite chirality or handedness. And neutrinos interact with other matter only through gravity and the weak nuclear force. In fact, they're so weakly interactive, right now there are several trillion passing through you and you don't even notice it. Scientists with the June collaboration think neutrinos may help them answer one of the most pressing questions in physics, why we live in a universe dominated by matter. You see, When the universe was formed in the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago, equal amounts of matter and antimatter would have been created. But when matter and antimatter come into contact, they annihilate each other in a flash of gamma rays. And that begs the question, why was the universe not destroyed as soon as it was formed? And why do we live in a universe full of matter? In other words, why are we here at all? Scientists with the June Collaboration are hoping their study may provide hints as to the answer to that question and that's where the enormous proto-dune detector comes in. It's the size of a three-storey house in the shape of a gigantic cube, and it's the first of two prototypes being built as forerunners to what will be a much larger detector for the dune project. They'll be hosted by the U.S. Department of Energy's Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory in the United States. The second prototype detector, using a different approach to the liquid argon technology, will come online in a few months' time. But when the first full-scale dune detector modules record data in 2026, they'll each be 20 times larger than the prototypes. This first proto-dune detector took some two years to build and eight weeks to fill with 800 tonnes of liquid argon, which needs to be kept at temperatures below minus 184 degrees Celsius. The detector works by recording traces of particles in the argon. These particles come from both cosmic rays and from a beam created at CERN's accelerator complex. And now that the first tracks have been seen, scientists will operate the detector over the next few months to test the technology in depth. The technology being used on the first proto-dune detector will be the same as that used for the first dune detector modules in the United States. They'll be built over a kilometre underground in the Stanford Underground Research Facility in a disused mine in South Dakota. More than a thousand scientists and engineers from 32 countries are working on the development, design and construction of the dune detectors. When neutrinos enter the detectors and slam into the argon nuclei, they'll produce charged particles. And those particles will leave ionization traces in the liquid, which can be seen by sophisticated tracking systems, able to create three-dimensional pictures of otherwise invisible subatomic processes. June will not only study neutrinos, but their antimatter counterparts as well. And scientists will look for differences in behavior between the neutrinos and antineutrinos, which could provide clues as to why the visible universe is dominated by matter. June will also watch for neutrinos produced in supernovae as stars explode, and that could reveal new information about the formation of neutron stars and black holes. And it will also investigate whether protons live forever, or whether they eventually decay. And if so, what happens to the quarks inside them? In fact, observing proton decay would bring science a step closer to fulfilling Professor Albert Einstein's dream of a grand unified theory. I'm Stuart Gary. this is Space Time. The Ariane 5 rocket has successfully carried out its 100th launch. Ariane Space Flight VA243 blasted off from the European Space Agency's Kourou Spaceport in French Guiana, carrying two telecommunications satellites into geostationary transfer orbits. À attention pour le décompte final. Okay. 10 9 8 7 6 5 4 3 2 1 Top. L'allumage vulcain, allumage EAP et décollage VA243 sentire Ariane 5. Paramètres à bord sont nominaux. La propulsion est nominale. Well,
1: there you have it. What an sight. Ariane 5, the 100th launch. Today, there she is blazing a trail across the le night pilotage, skies here. Calme, at center. I have to tell you that it's really remarkable seeing that with your own eyes and hearing it, you can actually feel the vibration coming up on the separation of the boosters. We've been very lucky to have such a beautiful clear skies tonight.
0: Separation of the two
1: and we have confirmation there of the separation of the two boosters. So we are shedding weight. they burnt their propellants. We don't need them anymore. Two dots going to the right and left. And the dot in the middle is actually the Vulcan engine. It's the engine of the mainstay. The launcher is flying away from us.
0: The front of the vehicle what we
1: call the fairing. The pointy bit at the front, our satellites are in there. It's protecting them from the rigours of the launch. We are now 100 kilometres above the Earth and there's no longer any friction because the air is too thin for that to cause us any problems. This is the scheduled moment for separation.
0: The 6,441 kilogram Horizon 3E satellite was released 28 minutes after launch. Owned and operated by Intelsat and Japan's SkyPerfect JSAT, Horizons 3E will provide coverage for aeronautical and maritime mobility, fixed and wireless operators, as well as government customers over the Asia-Pacific and Pacific Ocean regions. Built by Boeing using Intelsat's Epic-NG design, Horizons 3E is the first satellite in Intelsat's Epic-NG spacecraft series to feature entire KU-band spot beams, utilising multi-port amplifiers that optimise power across the spacecraft. Meanwhile, the 3500 kilogram Azure Space 2 Intelsat 38 was released 14 minutes after the Horizons 3E. Built by Space Systems Loral, Azure Space 2 Intelsat 38 is a multi-mission satellite owned and operated by Azure Cosmos and Intelsat. It's equipped with 35 active KU-band transponders, providing increased coverage and capacity to direct-to-home, government and network services across Europe, Central and South Asia, the Middle East and Sub-Saharan Africa. Both satellites carry enough fuel for a design life of at least 15 years. Of course, the flight also marked the milestone 100th mission for the heavy-lift Ariane 5 rocket, confirming its role as Europe's space launch workhorse with over 790 metric tons, comprising some 207 spacecraft now placed in orbit over the past 22 years. And all that with a 98.1% success rate. The flight also marked the 300th mission for Ariane space, which, as well as the Ariane 5, also included in its manifest the Ariane 4, which carried out some 116 launches before its retirement, as well as the Vega and contract launches using Russian Soyuz rockets from Kourou. I'm Stuart Gary. This is Space Time. And time now to turn our eyes to the night skies and check out the Celestial Sphere for October on Skywatch. October is the tenth month of the year, which may seem confusing since octo in Latin means eight rather than ten. The answer lies in the old Roman calendar, which had just ten months, before the addition of January and February. And as we mentioned last month, that ten-month calendar still reflected today, with names such as September or Septem being Latin for seven, October or Octo meaning eight, November or Novem nine, and December or Deci meaning ten. Looking to the southwest, you'll see the two bright pointer stars to the Southern Cross. These two bright stars, one above the other, are known as the pointers and are used to help us find the Southern Cross. The brightest of the pointers and also what looks like the furthest away from the cross is Alpha Centauri, which just happens to be the nearest star system to our own solar system. Alpha Centauri is a triple star system, comprising two stars, Alpha Centauri A and B, which are a binary system orbiting each other with the third star, Proxima Centauri, orbiting the pair. Like the Sun, Alpha Centauri A is a spectral type G yellow dwarf star. It's about 10% more massive than the Sun and about one and a half times more luminous. Its binary partner, Alpha Centauri B, is a spectral type K orange dwarf star, a little smaller and cooler than our Sun, with about 90% the Sun's mass and about half its luminosity. The pair, Alpha Centauri A and B, orbit each other between 11.2 and 35.6 astronomical units, an astronomical unit being the average distance between the Earth and the Sun, which equates to about 150 million kilometres, or around 8.3 light minutes. So, this pair's orbit around each other varies between the average distance between Saturn and the Sun and between the Sun and Pluto. Two stars orbit each other every 79.91 Earth years. The pair are located at an average of 4.37 light-years from the Sun. Although it sounds like a measure of time, a light-year is actually a measure of distance. It equates to a distance of about 10 trillion kilometres, the distance a photon can travel in a year at the speed of light, which is about 300,000 kilometres per second in a vacuum, and the ultimate speed limit of the universe. The third star in the Alpha Centauri system is the spectral type M red dwarf star Proxima Centauri, Proxima Centauri is just 4.25 light-years away, making it the nearest star to Earth other than the Sun. It's loosely gravitationally bound to Alpha Centauri A and B, orbiting the pair at an average distance of about 13,000 astronomical units or 0.21 light-years. That's about 430 times the size of Neptune's orbit around the Sun. In 2016, astronomers confirmed the existence of an Earth-sized terrestrial planet orbiting within the habitable zone around Proxima Centauri, making it the nearest known extrasolar or exoplanet to Earth. The planet known as Proxima b takes just 11 Earth days to complete one orbit around its host star. That's far closer than Mercury's 88 Earth day orbit around the Sun. The second and slightly fainter of the two-pointer stars is Beta Centauri. And while Alpha Centauri is the third brightest star in the night sky, outshone only by Sirius and Canopus, Beta Centauri is only about tenth brightest. Looking towards the southeast, you'll see the bright blue-white star Alpha Eridani or Akhenar, which represents the southern tip of Eridanus, one of the largest and longest constellations in the sky. Akhenar is located some 139 light-years away. It's a binary star system, comprising two stars, Alpha Eridani A and Alpha Eridani B. Alpha Eridani A is a young hot spectral type B blue star, about 6.7 times the mass of the sun with a stunning 3150 times the sun's luminosity. The companion star, Alpha Eridani B, appears to be a spectral type A white star, about twice the mass of the sun. The two stars orbit each other every 14 to 15 Earth years at an average distance of 12.3 astronomical units. Because of its high rotation rate of over 16 km per second, Alpha Eridani A is one of the least spherical stars in the Milky Way. Spinning so rapidly, it has the shape of an oblate spheroid, with an equatorial diameter some 56% greater than its polar diameter. The distorted shape means the star displays significant latitudinal temperature, with its polar temperature being above 20,000 Kelvin, while its equatorial temperature is around 10,000 Kelvin, because it's much further away from the stellar core. The high polar temperatures are generating a fast polar wind which ejects matter from the star, creating a polar envelope of hot plasma and gas. Located between the South Celestial Pole and Achenar are two faint, fuzzy-looking clouds. Now, in reality, these aren't clouds but two satellite dwarf galaxies which orbit the Milky Way, known as the Large and Small Magellanic Clouds. They're named after Ferdinand Magellan, who became the first European to officially record them during his expedition to circumnavigate the Earth between 1519 and 1522. The bigger and nearer of the pair is the Large Magellanic Cloud, which is located about 160 light-years away and is easy to spot about halfway between Achenar and the horizon. It's about 14,000 light-years across. That's twice the size of the Small Magellanic Cloud, which is located some 200,000 light-years from the Milky Way. By comparison, the Milky Way itself is much larger, about 100,000 light-years across. These two dwarf galaxies are separated by about 75,000 light-years. They were considered the closest galaxies to the Milky Way until the 1994 discovery of the Sagittarius dwarf elliptical galaxy, and then the 2003 confirmation that the Canis Major dwarf galaxies are actually our nearest galactic neighbour. The total mass of the Magellanic clouds is uncertain. Only a fraction of their gas seems to have coalesced into stars, and they both probably have really large dark matter halos. One recent estimate of the total mass of the Large Magellanic Cloud places it at about a tenth that of the Milky Way. The Magellanic Clouds have both been greatly distorted by gravitational-tidal interactions as they're gradually being torn apart and distorted by the Milky Way. These huge tidal forces have turned both Magellanic Clouds into irregular, disrupted barred spiral galaxies. The Large Magellanic Cloud does retain a very clear spiral structure in radio telescope images of neutral hydrogen gas. And tidal gravitational streams of neutral hydrogen gas and isolated stars connect both dwarf galaxies to each other and to the Milky Way. A clear example of galactic cannibalism at work. If you check out just above the Small Magellanic Cloud through a backyard telescope or a good pair of binoculars, you'll see a small blurry dot. That's the 47 Tucanae globular cluster a tightly packed ball of stars some 16,000 light-years away that were all originally formed at the same time through the gravitational collapse of the same molecular gas and dust cloud. Looking west this time of year, you'll see the bright reddish-orange supergiant Antares in the heart of the constellation Scorpius the Scorpion. And above it, you'll see a bunch of stars stretched out and shaped like a reverse question mark. That's the tail of the Scorpion. And just above and to the north of that is the constellation Sagittarius, the Archer. Sagittarius points to the heart of our own Milky Way galaxy. It shows the way to Sagittarius A star, the supermassive black hole at the centre of the Milky Way, some 27,000 light years away. This monster black hole has some 4.3 million times the mass of the sun. Looking to the north-northwest is the constellation Lyra the Harp and its brightest star Vega, the fifth brightest star in the night sky and one of the closest, at just 25 light years away. Vega is a spectral type A white star, more than twice the size and some forty times the mass of the Sun. Just to the right of Lyra, and almost directly north just above the horizon, is the constellation of Cygnus the Swan, and its brightest star Deneb, one of the most luminous stars in the sky. Deneb is a massive spectral type A blue-white supergiant. It has some nineteen times the mass and more than a hundred times the diameter of our Sun. In fact, this star is somewhere between 55,000 and 196,000 times as luminous as the Sun. The big range in the estimate of luminosity is caused by the difficulty in determining Deneb's exact distance from us. Science's best estimates place it at around 2,600 light-years, give or take 212 light-years. High in the northern sky is the constellation of Aquila the Eagle and its brightest star, Altair. Altair is a nearby spectral type A white star located just 17 light years away. It's about 10 times brighter and around 1.89 times the mass of the Sun. Despite its size, Altair spins on its axis in just 10 hours, compared to the Sun's 28 Earth Day rotation. Now, these three stars, Altair, Deneb and Vega, form what is known as the Summer Triangle, a stellar grouping. October also plays host to three meteor showers, the Draconids, the Taurids and the Orionids. The Draconids will be the first taking place on October the 8th. They're so named because their meteors appear to radiate out of the constellation of Draco the Dragon, and so are best viewed from the Northern Hemisphere. They're actually produced as the Earth's orbit takes it through the debris trail left behind by the comet 21P Jacobini-Zinner, which takes about 6.6 Earth years to make a single orbit around the Sun. The Taurids meteor shower will take place on October the 10th, and as their name suggests, they appear to radiate out from the constellation of Taurus the Bull. The Taurids meteors are composed of larger-than-average pebbles and dust grains, and they're thought to be generated by debris from the comet 2P Enki, although it's thought both the Taurids and Enki itself could be the remains of a much earlier comet, which disintegrated over the past 20,000 to 30,000 years breaking into several pieces and releasing material both by normal cometary activity and also possibly by gravitational tidal interactions with the Earth and other planets. The Torrid's debris stream is the largest in the inner solar system, taking the Earth several weeks to pass through and resulting in an extended period of meteor activity compared to other meteor showers, which are usually over in a matter of days. You see, due to the gravitational perturbations of planets, especially Jupiter, the torids have been spread out over time, allowing separate segments labelled northern torids and southern torids to be observable at different times in different hemispheres. The southern torids are active from about September 10th to November 20th, while the northern torids are active from around October 20th to December 10th. Next is the Orionids meteor shower, which will peak on October 20th. They're caused by debris from Comet Halley, which also causes the Eta Aquarids meteor shower in May. Comet Halley takes around 76 Earth years to complete each orbit around the Sun. Its next close encounter with the Earth will be in 2061. The Orionids are equally spectacular in both northern and southern hemisphere skies, with up to 20 meteors an hour radiating out from the constellation Orion. The best time to see the Orionids is just after midnight and also right before dusk. Turning to the planets now, and the Moon has just passed last quarter and is now a waning crescent. Mercury recently passed behind the Sun at Superior Solar Conjunction and so only has about 7 degrees of separation, making it difficult to spot. Not so hard to see is the spectacular evening star Venus, although of course it's really a planet, not a star. You'll see it above the western horizon at sunset, setting about 3 hours after the Sun. Mars will be high in the northeastern sky this time of year, having recently passed opposition and so not setting until around 2.30 in the morning. Another good evening object to keep an eye out for is Jupiter, which should be visible at about a quarter past eight above the western horizon, setting about an hour later. Get a good look now, because it will soon be passing behind the sun at solar conjunction. Another evening object, Saturn, will be visible around a quarter past six in the northeastern sky, setting just before 1am. Now, I've been saying northeastern sky and northwestern sky because most of our listeners come from the southern hemisphere. For our listeners north of the equator, of course, you transpose the word southern for northern. Now, also, if you have a decent backyard telescope, this is a good time to look for the solar system's two most distant planets, the magnificent ice giants Uranus and Neptune. Uranus is approaching opposition while Neptune's just past it. Uranus will rise in the northeast about a quarter to ten in the evening and fading away in the early dawn light in the northwest. Neptune will rise in the east around 7pm, setting in the west at around three in the morning. And time now for another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with the Science Report. Scientists have started working on a new class of antibiotics which they hope will combat the problem of deadly multidrug-resistant bacteria. This rapid spread of multidrug-resistant bacteria has become a global health emergency. And in the absence of new drugs, it's widely feared that common infections will soon become untreatable. But in a world first, scientists at Griffith University are working on a new kind of antibiotic which could eventually limit multi-drug resistance by targeting and disrupting key elements in bacterial cells. Known as self-derived structure-disrupting peptides, they work by destroying the structure of essential protein to disable its function. See, most antibiotics stop key functions in bacteria by binding to the surface of key protein, preventing their normal function. Instead of binding to the surface of the protein, this new antibiotic peptide disrupts the structure of the protein, which stops it functioning. Researchers say this same technique could theoretically target cancer-causing proteins and viral proteins, providing a unique way to approach drug resistance in cancer patients. Solar panels are great, free energy from the sun, but they're let down by not being able to store energy from sunny weather for use on a rainy day. And of course there's that night problem as well. Now, scientists have developed a solar flow battery that can both soak up the sunlight and store it as chemical energy for later use, without the need of connecting the device to the grid or a separate battery. A report in the journal Chem says the new solar battery will have three different modes. Firstly, of course, it can convert sunlight directly into electricity. Secondly, it can charge like a typical battery. Or thirdly, it can soak up the sun's rays and store them as chemical energy to be used later when night falls or clouds appear overhead. A new study has revealed that bombing raids during World War II not only caused devastation on the ground, but also sent shockwaves through Earth's atmosphere into space. The new findings, reported in the journal Annals of Geophysics, reveals the shockwaves produced by huge bombs dropped by the Allied forces on Nazi Germany were big enough to weaken the ionosphere 1,000 kilometres above the UK. The researchers used daily records collected between 1943 and forty-five, and found the electron concentration in the upper atmosphere significantly decreased due to the shock waves. A new study warns that men and women who work in industries dominated by the opposite sex tend to have higher rates of divorce. The findings, reported in the journal Biology Letters, are based on a study of marriages in Denmark. Researchers found that people are at higher risk of divorce when they have more potential mates in the workplace. But this is especially true, it seems, for men, and in particular, men with higher education. Interestingly, those working in the hotel and restaurant sectors generally had the highest divorce rates, while the farming, pharmaceutical and library sectors had the lowest rates of divorce. You're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary, and that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast through Apple Podcast iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audioboom, from Space Time with Stuart gary.com or from your favorite podcast download provider. Space Time's also broadcast coast-to-coast coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C., and available around the world